Listen, this morning we're starting a new series, a series through the book of Nehemiah. It's a series that's going to be entitled Faith That Moves You Forward. Faith That Moves You Forward. And so we're going to take about a chapter a week. And so this morning, I want us to read, it's not long, I want us to read the entirety of Nehemiah chapter 1, 11 verses. And so I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and reading through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. This is the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah, during the months of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress, city of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of the heavens. And I said, Lord, the God of the heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We have acted corruptly toward you and have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave to your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I choose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeem them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea, uh, faith maintained in the midst of trouble faith maintained in the midst of trouble. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. Because God, my brothers and sisters in front of me who I love so much don't need to hear me. They need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would give me grace, that you would let me be an instrument. Even as Nehemiah prays, give your servant's success today. Grant him compassion, but in the presence of these people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Faith maintained in the midst of trouble. Some of you might remember this. Um, by the way, if you're visiting with us, my name is Pastor Michael. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, privilege to serve as one of the pastors here at New Breed. Uh, as I mentioned, we're starting a new series. I'm excited about it through the book of Nehemiah. But let me, let me start with this. In 2019, you may remember Alfred Chestnut 
Ransom Watkins and Andrew Stewart, who were dubbed as the Harlem Three, were released from prison after 36 years in prison for a crime they did not commit. They were falsely convicted of a 1983 murder when two of them were 16 and one of them was 17 years old. They were released because it began to come to light that in the midst of the trial, evidence was withheld, pertinent evidence was ignored, and a preconceived narrative was peddled without any consideration for the evidence whatsoever. And so these men went in as teenagers, and they came out of jail in their 50s, 36 years of their life, spent in prison for a crime they did not commit. And somehow for Andrew Stewart, one of the men released, his faith in a good God withstood this incredible time of trial. When he was released, he praised God in the press conference for God's faithfulness in delivering him. But make no mistake, please, this, this wasn't the cliche statement that you're supposed to say, right? This wasn't an awards, uh, awards ceremony statement of, I want to give God all the glory. No, this wasn't just something he was supposed to say. This praise flowed out of a faith that God was good and worthy even in times of trouble. And we know that because Stuart walked in faith even when he was in prison. While in prison, Stuart ended up leading Bible studies and pointed tons of people to Jesus while he was in prison. When he got out, he reflected on his time and faith, and he said in prison that he understood more, quote, the significance of faith and the value of God. But he said that he had come to believe this. Again, this is him speaking. He says, if this is where God wants me to rest my head for the rest of my life, this is where I'm going to serve Jesus for the rest of my life. And what Stuart models is a faith that endures even when there is trouble all around. A faith that refuses to let go even when there seems like no earthly way that deliverance can come. It's a faith that believes when the world has no options, God is able. Y'all going to say amen? amen? I just want to know what we're working with this morning. I'm just trying to figure it out. All right. That was, that was a good opening. But I wonder this morning. I wonder if there's anybody here who knows what it's like to hold on to faith when trouble seems to be too great. This morning, we're beginning a series through the book of Nehemiah, again, a series we've entitled A Faith That Moves You Forward. Each week, we'll take a chapter at a time, so it'll be about 13 weeks long, about 13 chapters in Nehemiah, and we'll look at a different aspect of faith, of what it looks like to have a faith that moves you forward. And this week, we're going to focus on a faith maintained in the midst of trouble. And I know the speculation, right? The story of Nehemiah is one of, of Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of the city that had been destroyed and burned. And a lot of churches, I'm aware of this, a lot of churches pick this book when they want to talk about a building project, a building campaign. And though we happen to be in the beginning stages of a building campaign, it has nothing to do with this series at all. I will say this, there may be some connection solely because our attempt to acquire a space of our own for New Breed Church, we will need to have a faith that God is able. But the book of Nehemiah, this book is so much more than a lesson on strategic building projects. I know the popular series titles, I looked a lot of them up, right? You got, you got series through the book of Nehemiah, rebuild, restore, renew, uh, being a part of what God is building, so on and so forth. And I'm not throwing shade on anybody who's ever preached a series like that. I think you can draw some of those lessons out from the book of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah is so much more than a building project book. 
It teaches us about the might of God, the faithfulness of God, and the beauty and hope of placing your faith in a God who is able. A faith that is moving from one place to another, in and out of seasons, believing that faith in God is better than anything that this world can offer. So again, each week we'll take a chapter, explore what it looks like to have faith that is growing, a faith that is moving, and as a result, it's pushing us forward into whatever season God has next for us. So as we begin this series, I got to do a little bit of homework, set the stage for you, all right? Jumping into a new book, new part of the Bible, so I got to do a little bit of the background information. Uh, I'm not going to say it's going to be too long, but I'm not going to say it's short, but it's important, okay? So the story of Nehemiah begins around 445 BC. This is in the stretch of Israel's life, the people of God, where, where they're in exile, in captivity. Right, so this is, after, this is after King David. This is after the judges. It's after all of that. It, it's around the time of Esther. Uh, it's, it's in that section where God has led them into the land. They've rebelled in the land. The kingdom divided after Solomon, and, and they, they're in trouble. And so originally, the people of God are taken into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. You remember Nebuchadnezzar? That's where the story of Daniel takes place. So, so they're taken into captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result, in 586 BC, when Babylon was invading Jerusalem, the temple and the city was destroyed and burned to the ground. You can read about it in 2 Kings. Again, same Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel served. So the people of God are in Babylonian captivity from 586 B.C. on. But then in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great, the Persian king, invades Babylon. Daniel 5 talks about that invasion. How, how when the king's son, when Nebuchadnezzar's son was feasting, Persia was moving in to conquer and destroy Babylon. So now, by default, because Persia overtook Babylon... Now the people of God aren't exiles in Babylon. They're now exiles in Persia. So they're under Persian rule, right? And even in this seemingly common historical progression of national conquest, check this out, God is working. Because you see, one thing about Cyrus is that Cyrus was different than Nebuchadnezzar. And here's what made Cyrus different. Cyrus's practice was to conquer someone but then let them live their lives however they wanted to live it, to worship however they wanted to worship. The only thing that Cyrus cared about was you better pay your taxes. You could worship Yahweh. You could worship Molech. He didn't care what you worship. Just pay your taxes. But even in that, God is using a pagan king, Cyrus, to allow the people of God to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And so it's 90 years before Nehemiah comes on the scene, the first exiles return to Jerusalem. Right? We read in Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4, it says, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his entire kingdom and to put it into writing. And this is what King Cyrus of Persia says, The Lord, the God of heavens, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, May his God be with him, and may he go to Jerusalem and Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Let every survivor, wherever he resides, be 
assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a free will offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, let's pause here and understand the weight of what's going on. A pagan king conquers another pagan king who happens to be ruling over the people of God. So the people of God are now under the rule of another pagan king, and God stirs the heart of a pagan king to let his people go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. Right? Before we even get to Nehemiah, can we just consider how profound that is for a minute? That God doesn't just use those who trust him. God has never needed your faith to accomplish his plans. God has never been threatened by the powers of this world. So when God says he has all authority, he has all authority. And even this should push us to place our faith in that God in the midst of trouble, that we serve a God who has all authority. So Cyrus lets them return to rebuild the temple. This is around 536 BC. Zerubbabel leads exiles back to Jerusalem and begins to rebuild the temple. And so after Cyrus, Darius becomes king in Persia. And some people go to Darius. They don't like the fact that that God's people are back in their land worshiping their God. And so they go and they say, hey, you should probably put a stop to this because they're rebuilding all of this because they want to rebel against you. But then Darius finds the decree we just read about in Ezra 1 that King Cyrus decreed. And he says, no, if the king before me said that they could go back, I'm going to let them go back. And so after Darius is King Xerxes. And a side note, this is most likely Esther's boo. You remember Xerxes? Ahasuerus, as it's also pronounced. This is most likely the guy that Esther was forced to marry. And so during the reign of Xerxes, Ezra travels with exiles to Jerusalem and they participate in the rebuilding of the temple. Then you come to King Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son. And he is the king when Nehemiah comes on the scene. And so the story of Nehemiah is the story of, of him leading the people in Jerusalem, not to rebuild the temple, but as they now rebuild the city itself, beginning with the walls of the city that have been burned to the ground. We'll talk about the significance of the walls in the weeks to come, but it's important for a city to have walls, right? Especially when they're constantly under threat by people around them. And so this is significant. The temple won't last if the walls aren't rebuilt. And so throughout the story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah models an incredible faith in a God who is able. And it is a faith that constantly pushes Nehemiah forward. So again, as his story begins, I want us to take this first chapter and try to glean some lessons as we consider a faith maintained in the midst of trouble. There are a few truths I want you to grasp if we're going to have a faith that stands in the midst of trouble. Here's the first. A faith maintained in the midst of trouble recognizes the trouble. A faith maintained in the midst of trouble, it has to actually recognize the trouble. Look again at verses 1 through 3. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hananiah, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that survived the exile. 
And they said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. So we have Nehemiah, right? He's in the capital city. He's in Susa. He's in the palace, same palace that Esther was in. And Nehemiah, as we we read in the last verse of chapter one, he serves as the cupbearer to the king. We're going to get into a lot more of what that means, but I need to to tell you this. To be a cupbearer of the king meant that you had a pretty good life. I mean, this was a meaningful position. See, the cupbearer kept the king alive by tasting his drink, tasting his wine to make sure it wasn't poison. And this was especially significant in Persia because many of the kings took the throne because the previous king was disposed of through assassinations or a coup. So Artaxerxes knew that his life was constantly in danger. And er, and, And Nehemiah had the job of drinking the wine before it went to the king to make sure it wasn't poison. It's scary. But that position also brought with it an immense amount of prestige. Because this had to be a man that the king trusted. The king's not going to put his life in just anybody's hands. And as a result, he was always around the king. So he had a say in who got access to the king. He had the king's ear at any time. I mean, you're probably going to listen to the guy that's keeping you alive, right? But what also came with that position was wealth and riches. Like Nehemiah was known. He had authority over even some Persian people as an Israelite. So Nehemiah, he had a good position and he had a good life. Now, that's significant. I want you to notice this. Though Nehemiah himself was in a good position, his mind was still focused somewhere else. Because when his brothers arrived, the thing he questions them about first, his brother and those who are with him, is the state of Jerusalem and the Jewish people who are there. And they respond in verse 3 and say, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. Now, I want you to look at Nehemiah's response in the beginning of verse 4. It wasn't, man, that's tough for them. I'll say a prayer for them. It wasn't, I'm going to wish them well, but I'm doing all right here. No. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. And this entire interaction between Nehemiah and his brother and the men from Judah is positioned to teach us some very significant truths when we consider trouble we may face in this life. And I want you to notice this. Nehemiah is broken over the state of Jerusalem. And the reason he is broken over the state of Jerusalem is because he knows the promises of God about Jerusalem. He knows what the land means to the people of God, right? He probably has in his mind Deuteronomy 8 verses 7 through 10. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land with streams, springs, and deep water sources flowing in both valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and figs and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without shortage, where you will lack nothing, a land whose rocks are iron and from whose hills you will mine copper. When you eat and are full, you will bless the Lord your God for the good land that he has given you. Jerusalem is the land promised to them by God. It is to be a prosperous place, a place where the blessing of God is experienced in tangible ways, and Nehemiah is broken because they don't have it. They don't have the promise, and that's the problem. 
So watch this. The trouble was identified because Nehemiah knew what the promise was, and he also knew they weren't experiencing the promise of God. And so his mind was fixed on God's promises, even as he wasn't experiencing them. Listen to me. This is where you and I get jammed up, okay? Some of us right now are experiencing a stagnant faith, a faith that is not moving anywhere. And the reason is because we don't even know we're in trouble because we're settling for less and have forgotten the better promise. Anybody? I mean, pay attention to this. Nehemiah wasn't just fixed on the promise because his life was in shambles. Like in some sense, that's easier for us, isn't it? Like it's easier to fix, on, fix on our eyes on the thing that God has promised when our life is just a mess because we've tried everything. We got nothing left to give. All that we can do is look to Jesus. In some sense, that's easier for us. But Nehemiah was fixed on the promise even though his life was pretty good. Track with me here. Even when he had the, the riches of this world, the wealth of this world, the ear of the king, right? He had a position and authority. His mind was still fixed on the better promise. See, here's what Nehemiah teaches us. A good thing is not always the best thing. And our faith can become paralyzed when we settle for less than what God has promised. And I know it's true. Like, I'm not going to do it because that'd be weird, and I already called it out, so you'd have the answer. But I'd be willing to bet that if I went around this room and asked what your deepest desire is, what you desired God to do most in your life, and if you were honest, many of our responses would fall short of the majesty of what God has actually promised us. Our hope would probably look more like the American dream than it would an eternal weight of glory. You see, holding on to the promise of God is not just a good idea when things are going wrong. Holding on to the promise of God is a good idea when things are going great. Because if we are not careful, we can fail to see the trouble of a promise not yet realized because we've settled for less than what God has for us. That is a real danger, my friends. And so Nehemiah, he recognizes the trouble because he knows the promise and he believes that anything less than the promise is trouble. So faith maintained in the midst of trouble has to begin by recognizing that there even is trouble. But I want you to notice this second. A faith maintained in the midst of trouble also recognizes the cause. A faith maintained in the midst of trouble recognizes the cause. Look at verses six and seven. Nehemiah is praying and he says this, let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. Here it is. I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's family have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you, and we have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant, Moses. You see, Nehemiah not only knew the promise of God given in Deuteronomy, he knew the expectation as well. Because when God called Israel, he didn't call them and say, you're going to be my people, I'm going to give you a land of promise, and now you just keep doing whatever you want to do. No, there were expectations that came with the covenant. And God was clear of what would happen if the expectations were not followed. See, in the very next breath of Deuteronomy, that passage we read earlier of Deuteronomy 8 about the land, in the very next breath, after God promises the land, he says in verse 11, be careful 
that you don't forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commands, ordinances, and statutes that I am giving you today. And then down in verse 19, he says, if you ever forget the Lord your God and you follow other gods to serve them and bow and worship to them, I testify against you today that you will certainly perish. Like the nations the Lord is about to destroy before you, you will perish if you do not obey the Lord your God. And what the people of God are experiencing in Nehemiah 1 is the very thing that God had promised. It's the very thing that Ezekiel prophesied would happen if Israel abandoned their covenant faithfulness. In Ezekiel 5, 13 through 15, Ezekiel Ezekiel records the words of God. And he says, when my anger is spent and I have vented my wrath on them, they will know that I, the Lord, have spoken in my jealousy. I will make you a ruin and a disgrace among the nations around you in the sight of everyone who passes by. So you will be a disgrace and a taunt, a warning and a horror to the nations around you when I execute judgment against you in anger, wrath, and furious rebukes. I, the Lord, have spoken. I have this in my notes, but it's interesting to me when you think about that. Like God's going to get his glory from Israel one way or the other. Either they're going to be faithful and they're going to show the nations that, that flourishing under the hand of God is better than anything else. Or God's going to get his glory as he destroys Israel and the nations see that this God is not a God to be trifled with. God's going to get his glory because he's worthy. So God not only promised land for faithfulness, he promised exile for disobedience. And in a very real sense, the people of God are experiencing the faithfulness of God, just not the way they want to experience it. Listen to me. God is faithful. God is so faithful that when he promises good, You can expect good. And God is so faithful that when he promises ruin, you can expect ruin. Because I'm trying to tell you, church, our God is not a God to be trifled with. Listen, I I know you guys want the, like, happy, upbeat, and I got some of that coming at the end. Like, but you can't miss this. Yes, he is good. He is kind. He is a God of grace and mercy. But more than anything, he is a God who knows what he is worth, even if you don't. And sometimes we have to be honest about the fact that the reason we are experiencing the trouble we are in is because we are playing with God. We're trying to live like God will overlook our sin and our stupidity. Like he was playing when he said, be holy because I am holy. And I know in our day and age, the Christian life is often reduced to nothing more than moralistic therapy. And this idea of holiness just isn't popular anymore. But I would be failing as a preacher of God's word if I failed to communicate to you that holiness matters. How you live your life matters. And for some of us, we got to reckon with the fact that some of our troubles come because we're living like hell while expecting the peace of heaven. Holiness matters because our God is holy. Sometimes we are too quick to say that the devil is trying me when in fact the Lord is disciplining you. Oof. Oh, if we believe that. You see, Nehemiah had a clear understanding of the cause of Israel's trouble. This wasn't persecution because they were being faithful. This wasn't suffering because they were seeking to honor God. This wasn't the devil at all. This was God himself raising his hand against a people who had been disobedient. Not out of hatred, out of love. Because a good father disciplines his children. Nehemiah had a clear understanding, and in their case... The trouble was the result of their own sin. But I want to be clear. That's not the only reason we will face trouble in this world. Sometimes there are troubles that come because we just live in a broken world. 
and you didn't do anything wrong. And sometimes trouble comes. Sometimes trouble comes because we are being faithful and the world doesn't like it. And trouble comes. But sometimes trouble comes because we are forsaking what God has called us to do. And like a good father, he is disciplining us. And Nehemiah understood that the trouble Jerusalem was facing was a result of the fact that they had sinned and rebelled against God. But here's the good news. Let me tell you some good news. It doesn't matter what the cause of your trouble ultimately is. Because deliverance is going to be found in the same place no matter what. It doesn't matter if you're a sinner, a sufferer. It doesn't matter if you are persecuted or you are being unfaithful. Deliverance is going to be found at the same place. And that's good news because sometimes we don't honestly know the cause of our trouble. And even if we don't, deliverance is still available. This leads to the the final truth I want you to consider this morning. A faith maintained in the midst of trouble recognizes where deliverance is found. A faith maintained in the midst of trouble recognizes where deliverance is found. Let me draw your attention back to verse 4. Notice Nehemiah's response when he gets word of the trouble in Jerusalem. He says, when I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heavens. Nehemiah's immediate response in the midst of trouble was to run to God. And notice this, and then sit in his presence. See, this wasn't a fleeting prayer for help. Y'all know what I'm talking about. And God, help me with that. All right, on to the next thing. Right, like this, this, these weren't a few words spouted off as Nehemiah was driving to work to be the cupbearer for the day. And then he just went about his day. No, this is Nehemiah knowing that the only one who can deliver Israel from this trouble is God. And if God is able, then Nehemiah is going to sit with him. Listen to me. I've lived long enough to know. I haven't lived long, as long as some of y'all. I'm not going to name names. But I've lived long enough to know. There's some trouble I can't get out of on my own. I've lived long enough to know that there is some deliverance that no amount of money can buy, no amount of friends can overpower, and no amount of intelligence can overcome. But I've also lived long enough to know that there has never been a trial and there has never been a problem. There has never been a season and there has never been a situation. There has never been a trouble where God was not able to deliver. And, and there should be in this room at least two or three of you who could testify with me that you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because you found yourself in some situations where if it wasn't for God, you wouldn't have made it home that night. If it wasn't for God, that relationship would have destroyed you. If it wasn't for God, the struggles and the stupidity of your life would have left you in a prison cell for 36 years. But you deserved it. But God is able. And if that doesn't do it, there are some of you in this room right now who know that your sin was so great that there was nothing you could do to remedy it. But God loved you so much that he sent Jesus to do what only God could do and to redeem you from the curse of the law. Any believer in this room ought to be able to testify that you know that there is no trial that God is not able to overcome. There is no sin that God is not able to save you from. That our God is a God who is able. 
And if we're going to have a faith that endures in the midst of tr- the trouble that we will face, we have to have faith in a God who is able to deliver from anything. It doesn't matter if it's sin or suffering. It doesn't matter if, it matter if it's discipline or the devil. It doesn't matter if it's sickness or deep sadness that the soul can't explain. There has never been a trouble where God was not able. Do you believe that? But I want you to see this. Nehemiah's faith. I, n- I know that's a big claim. Like, Michael, you're asking us to believe a big thing here. I am. I understand it. But once again, Nehemiah's our example. Nehemiah's faith was not based on wishful thinking. He wasn't wishing that God was able. You tracking with me? He had seen it. Because Nehemiah knows some stuff. See, Nehemiah knows who this God is and what he's already done. Let me show you. Nehemiah knows who God is, and we see it there in verse 5. He says, I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. So here's what Nehemiah knows. He knows there ain't never been anybody like God. He knows that this is the God of heavens, of the heavens. He is the God who sits outside of time and space. He is the God who created the world and everything in it. And if he is the God who created the world, then he is the God who rules the world. And if he rules the world, it's got to mean that he's got some power over this world. And if God has power over this world, it means that God can use that power to deliver you from anything that you face. He is the God of the heavens. He is great and awe-inspiring. But Nehemiah doesn't just know who this God is. He knows what God has done. Because look at the end of verse 5, then jump down to verse 8. He says this in verse 5, I said, Lord, the God of heavens, the great and awe-inspiring God, here it is, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keeps his commands. Now down to verse 8, he says, please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon." I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I, where I choose to have my name dwell. Here it is. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great and strong hand. So watch this. Nehemiah remembers what God has promised, and he remembers what God has done. And he looks back because he says, God, these are the people that you, you did redeem. You did it back then, right? He's thinking about Moses and the commands that God gave to Moses. He's looked back to that time to when God said to Moses, follow me. But then God told Moses what would happen if he didn't. But then Nehemiah remembers what God told them he would do if they repented after they didn't follow God. And listen, Nehemiah in his prayer quotes the very words of God from Deuteronomy 30 back to God. But if you, this is verse 9, but if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I choose, where I chose to have my name dwell. So this is beautiful. What Nehemiah is doing is praying God's words back to God. But listen, this is not a prayer because he's asking God to remember like God has forgotten. Nehemiah doesn't believe that God has forgotten. This isn't like you and I do sometimes in arguments with our friends or in our spouses. Honest time again, right? Of like, 
well, you said that you were going to do this. It's always, I don't say that. It's always Aaliyah going, well, you said, because I always be forgetting what I said, that you were going to do this. She's reminding me of something that I don't know. Yeah, that's not what Nehemiah is doing. No, this is Nehemiah praying God's word back to God because he is confident in the faithfulness of God. And if God says it, he believes it. God meant it and God will do it. This is a prayer of confidence, believing in what God can do because of what God has already done. See, in verse 10, Nehemiah praying for his people, he says, they are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. And what Nehemiah is banking on is that if God redeemed once, he'll do it again. And sometimes what our faith needs in the midst of trouble is a reminder of the faithfulness of God back then in order to maintain confidence for what God can do right now. And make no mistake, Nehemiah has some stuff to look back on. He remembers the promise of God made to Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars as God delivered Sarah from her barrenness. He remembers when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and freedom to the promised land. He remembers when God delivered his people from the Philistines using a shepherd boy and a slingshot. He remembers when time after time God raised up judges to deliver the people of God from foreign oppression. And what Nehemiah is doing is looking back at the testimony of God and then praying the words of God back to God because he believes God is so faithful. If he did it back then, he can do it again. Maybe that didn't get you. Well, let me tell you this morning, as amazing of a testimony as Nehemiah has to look back on, you and I have a greater testimony of deliverance that we get to hold on to because his name is Jesus. And 2,000 years ago, deliverance from our greatest trouble was born in the little town of Bethlehem. And our trouble wasn't a foreign ruler. Our trouble wasn't an oppressive government. Our trouble wasn't a burnt down city. Our trouble was our own sin. It is sin, death, and the powers of hell. And Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our sin. Though he had no sin, he died a sinner's death in the place of you and me. And they hung him high and they stretched him wide to pay a debt that wasn't his. It was yours and it was mine. And he died on that cross and they put him in a grave. But three days later, he got up from the dead and walked out of the tomb. And like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. And where death is your victory, where death is your sting, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if God can deliver you from that, then there isn't anything you're going to face today, tomorrow, or next year that is too big for God to handle. There is no sin that you are going to stumble into that is too great of a problem for God. Church, I'm trying to tell you what I've been trying to tell you all morning is that God is able. And whatever trial you are facing, whatever suffering you are going through, whatever trouble you may be in, God is able. And if only we, the people of God, would believe that of Him. See, the question is not whether or not you're going to find yourself in some trouble in your life. Some of you are sitting in this room right now saying, amen, I'm in trouble right now. Some of you, it's trouble because you have sinned. Some of you, it's trouble because you just live in a broken world and you don't know what else to do. Some of you are suffering because you are fighting for holiness and faithfulness and the world does not like it. The question is not whether or not you're going to find yourself in trouble. The question is where are you going to turn when the trouble comes? So let me bring this to a close. 
This entire series is entitled, A Faith That Moves You Forward. And I want you to see, you can't miss it. Nehemiah, even as he sits with God, is moving forward. Because Nehemiah identifies the trouble because Nehemiah knew the promise. He was fixed on the promise. He knew they weren't experiencing the promise. And Nehemiah had two options in that moment. He could disregard his faith in God, believing that God was a liar because he didn't have the promise right now. Or he could press in to God to experience the promise that God had given, believing that God would bring about what he had promised. And you see, a faith that endures, a faith that moves you forward, is a faith that believes the promises of God even when you are not currently experiencing the promise of God. Because God has never failed to come through. And I'll I'll be honest with you, there are some promises that God has made to you and me that you are not experiencing yet. And what faith demands is not that you call God a liar, that you pull back from him, but that you press in believing that in his time, in his way, he will bring about the promise in the best way. Because if God is the one who promises, then God is the one who gets to decide when and how he will deliver on that promise. And sometimes, let's be honest, we are too quick to write God off because he doesn't act how we want when we want. God promises that he will work all things together for good. He doesn't say it's going to be good today. God promises you deliverance from all your enemies. He doesn't say that will be today. God promises that the sin that you are struggling with right now will lose its grip on you, but he doesn't promise that it's going to happen today. And if our faith is going to maintain in the midst of trouble, it is a faith that has to lean into God whenever we face trouble rather than pull away, believing that God is able and in his time he will do all that he has promised. And if you doubt his faithfulness for a minute, you turn right back around and look at the cross where he was faithful to deliver on his greatest promise. And so though Nehemiah plants himself in the presence of God, again, make no mistake, he is moving forward and willing not only to sit in faith, but to walk in faith. Because look at the very last part of his prayer. Like, we can't skip over this. Nehemiah says, give your servant success today and grant him compassion in the presence of this man. Or a better translation would be, grant him compassion in the presence of the king. You see, Nehemiah recognizes something extremely important. A faith that depends on the deliverance of God is not a faith that is stagnant. Nehemiah knows that though God is going to deliver, Nehemiah is going to play a part in that deliverance if it's ever going to come to fruition. And as we'll see next week, Nehemiah is going to have to go before the king that he serves a dangerous thing and make a big request of that king. And Nehemiah understands that it's one thing to trust God to deliver. It's another thing to walk with God as he delivers. Please understand that it's one thing to trust that God can deliver. It's another thing to walk with God as he delivers. You see, we like the looking back. Y'all always get excited when I do it. I get excited when I like looking back. When God parted the Red Sea. Right? When God conquered Goliath. Shepherd boy, slingshot. When God preserved Daniel through the lion's den, when he protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire. But the reason we like looking back is because we didn't have to walk where Moses walked. We didn't have to go in to the fire 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We didn't go into the lion's den. We didn't stand before the giant. So we like to look back because it doesn't cost us anything. But if we're going to trust that God is able to deliver right now from these troubles, it, it is a trust that is going to demand that we walk with God as he delivers. And sometimes it means walking across a parted sea. Sometimes it means going into the fire and believing that either God's going to bring you out or he's going to take you home, but regardless, it'll be good. It is believing that if God can preserve because he has preserved, then I'm going to walk with him as he delivers. Again, looking back at what God has done is easy because it doesn't cost you anything. But walking with God and what he is doing, that can be a very scary thing. But if we have a faith that is going to maintain in trouble, it will have to be a faith that moves forward. It may be hard. The unknowns can be scary. But I'm convinced that walking with the God who is able is better than any temporary comfort that the world can offer if we sit still. And so my prayer for us throughout the entirety of this series as we flesh it out over the next 12 weeks is that our faith would be strengthened not just to believe things about God, but to walk with God into whatever he has in front of us. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, I pray that you would cultivate in us a faith that maintains in the midst of trouble, Lord. A faith that believes, God, that you are able that there will never be a trial, a season, a suffering, a sin. There will never be a moment where your power is not strong to save. And God, I know I've said it a few times, but it's our hope, Lord. I pray that if we ever doubt, that we would fix our eyes on the cross and sit there until we believe again that you are a God who always comes through. It might not be when we want, it might not be how we want, but it is always good. It's always what's best. So I pray for Newbreed, pray that we would have a faith that moves forward, faith that holds on in the good seasons and the bad, that knows the promises of God, believes the promises of God, and walks in the promises of God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.